My name is Justin Gage, and you're tuned in to the Aquarium Drunkard Transmissions Podcast with your host, Jason Woodbury. Transmissions. I've been captivated by the striking music featured on Sherry Knight's American Rituals lately. You're hearing one of my favorites from the collection, Prime Numbers. Recorded in the late 70s, early 80s at Evergreen State College in Olympia, Washington, Knight's experimental compositions recall the minimalism of John Cage or Meredith Monk, but are shot through with a post-punk streak all delivered with meditative, repetitive vocal abstractions that evoke her interest in Buddhism. Hailing from Western Massachusetts, where she grew up a farm girl, she remains one to this day, Knight's travels eventually took her away from Olympia. She joined up with an alt-country band, Blood Oranges, and after that embarked on a solo career that found her working with people like Emmylou Harris. Sherry is a rare person who connects equally to Pauline Oliveros and Steve Earle, who we discuss in this episode, and I really enjoyed meeting and spending time with her. I hope you enjoyed this episode of Transmissions just as much as I enjoyed making it. Alright, without further ado, let's get into the conversation. Thanks so much for tuning in. We're glad to have you here with us. How are you doing today? I'm good. How about you? I'm great. Uh, thank you so much for taking the time to do this. Yeah, I'm happy to do it. Uh, it's I, my, I've never done a podcast, um, done anything with podcasts before, except for listen to them. This <laughs> is this is your first podcast. Oh yeah. Well, we're honored to have your first podcast be here on Aquarium <laughs> Drunkard Transmissions. I've really been enjoying listening to American Rituals. Oh, good. This is music you made uh, a while ago. Um, how has it felt yeah. revisiting this uh, over the, the last couple months and and working with the folks at Freedom to Spend to get these songs back out into the world? What has that process felt like for you? Um, it just it's It was a, a real evolution because I didn't, um, you know, it just came out of the blue. And I, I got a um, a call from my my ex housemate from Evergreen, and he said, "Oh, you know, these guys are looking for you." But I I told them that you probably weren't really interested in doing anything, and I said, "Well, you know, I'll call them back." And um, so I talked to Pete, and uh, you know, I I just 
was so amazed at how enthusiastic they were. And I was in the beginning, you know, I, I, I think I probably hit it a little bit, but I was, I was not that enthusiastic. Um, I, it, it was a lot of work to, you know, get the tapes and to contact all the people because it was 40 years ago. Right. And, um, so as it rolled along, I, um, you know, I was, uh, definitely, you know, more in the game, <laughs> but you know, it's like, I really haven't been doing anything for the last 20 years. You know, I've taken a break, um, for the last 20 years from doing music. So, um, I just felt, you know, just sort of plopped back in that world and a little bit, uh, you know, sort of like, oh my gosh, I can't believe I have this one more thing to do. But I just kept having to tell myself how cool it was going to be to, you know, find all, all the source materials and get back in touch with a ton of people who I really don't talk to enough. And um, it's always great. And, yeah. Yeah. And the, you know, Pete and Matt and Jed and John, I mean, they're all fantastic. Um, and they're just really chill. And I love the label. Um, I just, you know, all, all of the labels, the three Beats in Space and RVNG, you know, I mean, I feel um, like it's a really good place for this to land yeah freedom to spend and also i'm just you know really psyched to be a part of it yeah so you hadn't like you're talking about some of the the required archival work you hadn't kept you hadn't kept all these tapes you didn't have everything all assembled ready to go you had to track it all down or be a part of tracking it down i did and i had a box of tapes that literally, you know, I am just one of those people who I can't hang on to anything. Sure. I just, things come in and then they leave and then they leave and then something else comes in and it just, it's about back and forth. But I had this white box of tapes that I carried around with me for 40 years and it attics here, there, you know, houses here and there. And I didn't have everything. And I had not listened to any of it in in 40 years because wow. it was all, yeah, it was all quarter inch um, uh, dubs, most of it. I didn't have any, I think I had one master, but I didn't have any, any of the two inch or, um, you know, half inch tape or any of that. So... What what did it feel like when you did listen listen to it? Uh, the first the first song that I checked out from the compilation when it hit my inbox was Prime Numbers, which is such a yeah. cool. That's like I was like, this is this is so cool. Uh, it's so awesome, um, and it struck me as so modern sounding and so like kind of like of the of the moment in a certain way. So I wonder what it was like for you to hear this stuff after such a long absence from it. Um, it felt really good to listen to it, you know, honestly. And so John Bennett, um, John also Bennett, he um. There's one piece, the primary colors piece. Um, or no, wait a minute. Was it primary colors? No, it was it was hearsay. Mm. Um, that piece um, 
Now, I had mixes of it that I had originally done that I really liked. And then um, it was mixed for another project. And I wanted to try mixing it more like how I had done it originally. And so John worked on that. And that was really fun. And that one, you know, it, it the sound was a little bit better because we actually had the master, obviously. Um, but most of them, you know, Breathe was ripped from a cassette. Wow. Yeah. yeah. Well, it all sounds... It, it all sounds so, I mean, there's, um, there's a variety between the pieces, you know, it doesn't, it doesn't all sound like you're, you're not in the same mode for the entirety of these seven songs. Um, but, no. but there's a thread that goes through and, 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 and it, it just really strikes me as, I mean, I love the title of the record American Rituals and I love that there <laughs> is a sort of ritualistic element to it where did where did that where did the title how did the title come in into being uh you know it was really funny i I mean i grew up in new england and um three hours from new york and a couple hours from boston and when i went out west in the mid-70s it just blew my mind because I was in, I went to, to, out to Eastern Washington and went to school there for a little while and then out on the coast. And I, I, it was nothing, the people were nothing like anyone I knew. Mm. The places were nothing. I mean, in the mid seventies, it was, it was very provincial. Right. Um, and there were, you know, there wasn't, it wasn't really until the nineties that people like moved out of the cities and started going to all these places up in the, in the Northwest. And, um, I, I was just, it was a little slice of, you know, American life that I had never seen. You know, you'd walk into these, you know, you'd be driving around in Wyoming or something and walk into a bar and you felt like you were, you know, like somebody was going to come out and like, point a six gun at you you know it just was crazy and i um i think that was a lot of it but also that time i think that that a lot of us um certainly at evergreen and i think it was probably more um more everywhere but really on the down low is that there were holding up aspects of our culture um that we could like sort of be proud of in a really interesting way like going to a to like a, a dive bar and getting like this perfect looking oval diner plate with like a perfect hamburger and French fries on it. And just how, how like somehow I knew that that was, you know, part of my American experience. Um, so there was that part of it, but also the ritual part is just was, um, you know, I was really into obviously, um, uh, you know, meditation and repetitive figures and the minimalist composers. And, you know, the ritual was really um, how I worked and how I came up with those pieces, how I thought about them and um, conceived of them and did a lot of the work in my, just in, in my head, you know, yeah. walking around here, there and everywhere. And, the largest part of all those pieces was just done as I just carried on my day thinking about the idea, the feeling sense of it, 
what I could see in my mind's eye about how the sound would look and sound and and then um, to go into the studio and just the red light was on and it was just game on like that it was that was it and I don't think I did a second take on anything in that on the whole record I just would pretty much refused to do them and um, uh, and it's it, so it was it was like this event yeah you know it was very like i had to be really present for it and i loved the way that it became sort of a transcendent experience for me you know just that my brain just completely shut off and i was just so in it um yeah so does that does that sort of explain it yeah very much so very much so had you experienced that kind of transcendence that kind of slipping out of the 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 part of music making where we're consciously considering what we're doing and wondering if we're doing the right thing or doubting and all the things that can happen when you're listening mm -hmm. or playing music rather had you experienced those moments of sort of transcendence of sort of pure flow state before you got to to evergreen when you were younger had those had those moments happened for you yeah 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 because i think you know i've been playing music since i i mean i don't really even remember sitting down at the piano for the first time or singing for the first you know it's just my mom was really musical my dad was really musical and um it was always like that it was always like that for me, just um, a way to, you know, it was somewhere else to go. Yeah. And so, um, yeah, it was, um, it was, it was uh, a feeling that I knew really well, but of course there was like a thing to it of knowing, okay, I'm in the studio, somebody's sitting over there and they're about to like press record. Right. And then I'm going to see that little red light. And then like, what's going to happen? <laughs> you know, am I going to like do this or am I, is something going to derail me or, you know, there's, when you're an adult, I just think it's, it's possible and, and probable for when we get in those pinch situations to, um, you know, you can get psyched out, but, you know, I've always been like a real face it head on kind of daredevil type. So I love that about it. Yeah. And, um, Yeah. It was it was uh, it was really really fun. No second takes. I love that as an approach. No, and I didn't. I usually only had one. The prime numbers. All I really had was the bass line. Those two notes, and then um, I put those down, and then um, everything else just was responding to that. Yeah, and all those pieces are. And, and, I mean, tips on filmmaking wasn't really done that way, but I'm trying to think. I pretty much all the other ones were were just responding to what had come before it. Sure, sure. So, sort of a yeah, sort of an input output sort of loop or something like that. Yeah. Yeah. Just exactly. You know, just finding. I don't know. I, it, it just finding the places for another for the notes to be just in real time. And it's just so snap, you know, it just it, it happens so quickly. And there really is just no thought. In, there was no thought involved. That was just gone from the from the get go. As soon as I would start singing or playing something. 
Did you already have uh, sort of a, a meditation practice in place by the time you arrived at Evergreen? What, what, what's the sort of um, spiritual or meditative background that you were working with as you started making this music? Um, you know, I think I've always sort of had that only when I was younger. Um, I'm really into repetition. Mm. And um, that is evident by listening to the record. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> For um, sure. I like it. There's something really, really soothing about it. And, you know, I have asked myself the question, you know, why did I do these pieces? Was was this like an exercise in self-soothing or something? I mean, not like, you know, I'm running around with my hair on fire, but um, it just feels really good to just focus on breath and focus on you know something um generally i'm a slower tempo person i'm kind of plotting and very like torian about my 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 beats and my um my rhythm my sense of rhythm um but uh yeah i definitely didn't have any knowledge of meditation until um until i in, in high school, um, when I had a really great music teacher and she got us right into all that stuff. Mm. Um, you know, I remember, um, you know, just, just John Cage forward and it was great. And, yeah. um, it really, it just really affected me a lot. And the meditation practice, actually, the first time I ever really meditated a lot in a, in a formal way was at the Zen Art Center in Mount Tremper when I went to, um, work with Pauline. Uh, Pauline Oliveros, who, who obviously yeah. has pioneered this, this deep listening, um, practice, yes. which I'm sure, you know, is, you know, it's, it's interesting. One of my favorite books that I've read this year is a, is a, is a book called Buddhist Bubblegum by Matt Marble about, Oh wow! About meditation, Sounds... meditation in the in the in the music of um, Arthur Russell, not just his meditative practice, but his um, mm-hmm. his overall um, his overall spiritual outlook. How all of these different like esoteric Zen ideas played into what he was doing musically, and and I mean, mm-hmm. what's so funny to me is that a, a strange thing can happen with music where you can ascribe or glean spiritual qualities from listening to something and then talk with the artist later as has happened occasionally with me over my years interviewing people or you know talking with musicians and and I'll bring up the 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 sort of spiritual or or uh, otherworldly quality that I that I pick up from something and then sometimes artists will tell you like yeah, I don't know. That's not in it for me. You know, that, that's not what I was feeling, you know. But so it's mm-hmm. an interesting thing to to sort of be able to bridge those two things, to to be able to have them be varied expressions of maybe a similar internal mm-hmm. state or something like that. I don't know if I'm putting it the way you would put it or not, but No, it's interesting. I mean, what you just said makes me makes me wonder too is that I mean, how often really, like that connected state, um, that connected, I mean, because that to me, that's what spirituality is. It's just being really fused with, with something. Um, and sometimes I think that's part of it is just the not knowing that we're there. Yeah. Um, and yeah, and, and I, I totally get that, that there, 
I mean, I've had that experience talking to people about their work as well, where they, you know, I'm so, I'm just so overwhelmed in some way about something. And then they, they would say the same thing, like, yeah, I, I, I don't get it. Yeah. I don't know. I was just playing guitar, man. Yeah. I don't know what you're yeah. talking about. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> no, totally, totally. But but I but that that's that's fascinating and 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 very very interesting and it's especially interesting that you had a high school teacher that is turning you on to to min- minimalism you know as as an idea oh I mean, yeah because I have to imagine um, uh, despite the fact that that time was culturally different you know you still sort of had to be in the know to know what's going mm-hmm. on in, in the in the minimalist oh, yeah. circles right. Absolutely. Yeah, I remember. um, Yeah, nobody, I mean, none of my friends, you know, I was, I went out west and all my friends were here in New England. Yeah. And, um, you know, I said, oh, yeah, I'm going to work with Pauline Oliveros. And nobody knew who she was. They were like, oh, great, honey. Sure. (laughs) (laughs) That's so funny. (laughs) Yeah. What? uh, But yeah, all, all of those, those, people i mean all of it was just not that known and then you could find the lanes you know new music america and some of the publications that were out and there were centers for sure Mm -hmm. around the united states where you know you were you knew that you could find some people who were into it so you you mentioned cage as like sort of the introduction to that world were the other minimalist composers, were there others that were particularly interesting to you, especially when you were working on this kind of music? Um, well, you know, it's just so many, really. Yeah. Um, it's just, I don't know. I mean, everybody who's in the category from that time, yes. And, um, Reich you know, and I Terry really, Riley, those types. Yeah, yeah, Robert Ashley, mm. and you know, just of course the um, Steve Reich, and um, uh, yeah, I mean, I I can never remember everybody when I want to, but yeah, it's just it, the <laughs> list goes on and on and on. And I was remember the um, I was talking to somebody, and you know, it's been so long since I had conversations about this music. Um, that I had totally forgotten about Gordon Muma, who I used to really dig. And um, I was like, oh, my God, yeah, I used to be really into him. And, you know, I had totally forgotten about him. It's like, how can that happen? I don't know but, Gordon Muma's work, actually. Yeah, yeah, he's a West Coast guy. And, um, yeah, you should, you should definitely look him up. There's some stuff that, to listen to online. Yeah. And um, as soon as I got done with my conversation and went, Oh my gosh. Yeah. I went online and listened to a bunch of old stuff, but there's, there's some things on online on, on YouTube. The, the music that you were making at this time, obviously it's rooted in that, that minimalist thing, but it's, it's not difficult for me to hear strains of say post-punk or deconstructed sure. art, art rock, you know? Um, mm-hmm. it, and, and also is it, is it you playing bass on a on a fair amount of is is, is bass one of the the primary instruments that you are playing? Um, you know, I did play bass on all of. Oh no, actually, I didn't play the the weird fretless in um, tips on filmmaking. Oh, but which is very played, cool. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I played the rest of it. Um, but you know, I didn't play mm. at that time. I mean, I really just picked it up and plucked it. Sure. Um, 
Um, I mean, I still, it's so funny. When I listen to prime numbers, there's this, the baseline is just so totally, <laughs> I, I can't even explain it. I just cannot stop laughing when I listen to it. It's, it makes me just like catch my breath. I can't believe how like wacko that little baseline is. I, I Absolutely. So I know funny. I know exactly what you mean. You know, we don't even always know novelty in music is such an interesting and I don't mean that in like a sort of diminished or minor sense. I mean, when you hear something that really doesn't sound like anything else and prime numbers to me is sort of a, a great example of that. Obviously, you've got roots. You can tell that you're listening to to minimalism. You're listening to this sort of like repeated phrasing. You're, mm -hmm. it's, it's not that you're coming from someplace that nobody had ever been before. And yet it really does sound entirely like its own thing. That That's one of those mm -hmm. tracks that really feels that way. Were you, I mean, were you drawing mm -hmm. from, from pop music as well at the time? Was that also an interest to you? Oh, I listen to every, I'm like a Hoover. I mean, I'll listen to anything. And, yeah. and, I have just um there really is nothing I won't listen to um and um yeah and what was around I'm, there were so so much listening and so many people that I was around who had you know my kind of ears that just wanted to hear everything um and we listened to a lot of different music and, th and there was a lot of music there were a lot of great west coast bands at that point and um, you know, being around the whole op scene because John and Dana, you know, after they left Evergreen, I was getting there as they were leaving, but they stayed and they still worked the radio station and in and out. And, um, uh, I helped them on op. And so it, there was always stuff to listen to, Yeah, you know, just a lot of just, um, it, I can't even begin to, you know, like really interesting, weird stuff and the from like the journal poetry systems to, you know, I don't know if you ever heard any of those records. Those no. were like these collaborative. Yeah, it was um, John Giorno and Ann Waldman, Laurie Anderson, Philip Glass, and they put out some, several really hilarious records that are great, great, right, great poetry, great um, music. Um, but um, also just all the composers and all the pop stuff that was going on at that time. Um, but both the radio station that we all worked at, KAOS, I was a um, program director. Mm. And um, so it was, you know, there was just so much, we just had so much music around. We were constantly getting parcels every day, it seemed like, and new stuff to listen to. And um I mean, I've forgotten probably a, a ton of of music, you know, just sure. Uh, what, but but yeah, there were a lot of bands, a lot of British bands. Listened to I, I listened to a lot of British folk music. I was really into that sort of neo um, neo um, uh, traditional uh, folk. Um, you know, all the, the women were like Jackie McShay and June Tabor and Linda Thompson, Richard Thompson, Fairport Convention. Sure. You know, all that stuff. We were into that and all the, the sort of doom and gloom um, uh, 
you know, joy division, all that, you know, just everything that sort of fell into that category. I mean, it was just, I don't know, I can't even start yeah. with it or else I won't stop. It's, it's so funny. But, You're describing all the kind of music that we like that we're into at Aquarium Drunker too, right? Everything from yeah. Joy Division to Richard yeah. and Linda Thompson and, you know, oh, uh, and so fabulous. Well, yeah, I mean, absolutely. Richard, Richard Thompson, probably in my, on my, you know, Mount Rushmore of guitar guys. Oh, absolutely. And, and Linda's voice, unbelievable as well. Yeah. She's amazing. You, you and also, Oh, I, I was just going to say, and also the, the, one of the, um, Really, one of the first was that woman, Ann Briggs. Have you oh, ever yeah, heard her? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah Ann Briggs. She's just like so from another from another era. Yeah, for yeah. Sure. yeah. You know, you mentioned you mentioned earlier that when you listen to the baseline of Prime Numbers, that, that it just it causes you to laugh, and that's another thing that I think is. Um, Sometimes there's a tendency, especially when we're talking about avant-garde music or experimental music or, you know, mm -hmm. new, new music, to put it real broadly, you know, there's a certain kind of self-seriousness that comes along with that. And that's required, I think, to yeah. a certain degree, because yep. you got to believe in what you're doing and you're not making a, a, a joke with your music. And yet there is a... a it, it feels to me like there's a humorous quality or a playful quality, maybe, is a better mm -hmm. way to put it, in terms of the sort of way that you use language in these compositions, where hearsay is mm -hmm. a kind of a perfect example. It, it, it feels like the like the phrasing of those words is shifting as time goes on. Do you know what I mean? Like mm -hmm. you're yeah. hearsay, you know, hearsay. Yes. It's like there's all these yeah. different things. And, and I think about yeah. how there's a... There's a there's a playfulness and a kind of I wonder if you feel comfortable, you know, sort of ascribing that term humorous or 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 you know playful. I mean, what 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 do those sort of terms bring to mind when you think about how they relate to this this music? Well, you know, I it um I think that there wasn't a lot of meaning ascribed to any of the words mm. which took the seriousness out of it for me i think you know sure. i was just looking for words and and mostly for their sonic um you know how it felt to sing them uh, but also you know clearly they i there was a little meaning in them <laughs> for sure but yeah it definitely it, it wasn't i wasn't really serious um i think that you know i just i don't know i it's i never really thought about that that's a really good question but yeah i i definitely um i think that the fact that i just needed words yeah um and i kind of didn't really care what they were sure. um that that made it not serious and more playful for me and that's part of the play thing too comes in that immediacy of like how it happens in real time with the red light on and you know when i'm recording um just uh you know i didn't really have a track i didn't have i didn't know what i was going to do and it was it was play yeah that was the cool thing is that it, the whole response was was very much felt like play to me yeah absolutely and that is the hardest thing to retain often you know when you're when yeah. you're involved in music were these compositions that you uh did did you ever perform any of these 
live or in live settings as well, or was it mostly a studio thing? Um, actually, the last track, No One's Hands, mm-hmm. was part of a performance piece. And um, it was played, and then there were some words that um, went with it. Yeah. And I don't, I don't know where those ended up. Yeah. Yeah. But it was stuff, like a little story. But stuff like prime numbers, you weren't in like a coffee shop doing doing that. No, one. <laughs> no, no, none of those. No, I really, when I left Evergreen, literally, they went in the in a box. Yeah. And then. Um, I just, you know, did other things, you know, just did other, I, I just never really thought about performing those. And sure. yeah, I, I like, I don't know. I'm not really, I've done a lot of performance. I have to say, I don't really like it that much. I mean, sometimes I do, but I can, I'm very hot and cold with it. It really, um, I'm not someone who likes to do the same stuff all the time. I really, um, uh i like the sort of freshness of doing something while i'm really into it and while it's new and while while there's still some learning curve to it i'm just that's one of the things i think about about music is that if it does if i'm not learning something from it Mm. then i'm not i'm not i don't it's what really compels me to do it is to see what happens to learn it's like um, like, I don't know what anything's going to sound like. And so I get to learn something in the process of just seeing what happens. Right. And uh, so once the learning, like with pop music and being in bands and stuff, it just, for me, it gets old really fast. Sure. You know, it's, it's um, I know that that's, you know, there's, it takes all kinds. And, you know, I, I, I thoroughly, um, can see how people whose main, you know, who are players and who really love to embody that spirit over and over again. I, I do get that because I have experienced it. Um, it's just, um, it's just not really um, at the end of the day, I think it's not really my, my favorite thing, I guess, or what really keeps me going with it. Hey Transmissions listeners, are you a musical artist or in a band and you're just not sure how to get started sharing your music with the world? I want to tell you about DistroKid. DistroKid makes music distribution fun, and uh, here's the important part, it makes it easy. With unlimited uploads and artists like yourself keeping 100% of your royalties and earnings. A million plus artists rely on DistroKid to get their music onto Spotify, Apple Music, YouTube, TikTok, Tidal, Instagram, and all the major streaming services. DistroKid has just launched a new iPhone app, which allows you to upload your tunes, earn royalties, check your streaming stats, and add lyrics, credits, and metadata. Everything you need to do to get your music out there and resonating with listeners around the world. Head over to distrokid.com backslash VIP backslash Aquarium Drunkard to get started now, Transmissions listeners can enjoy 30% off their first year's membership. That's distrokid.com backslash VIP backslash Aquarium Drunkard. Head over to DistroKid and get your sounds shared with your listeners. 
so after you made this music, you have you you did go on and 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 work with other with other bands in more quote unquote kind of conventional settings, right? What was it? What yeah, happened? Conven- yeah, yeah. Um, well, I ended up living moving back here, and um, you know, I I had also um, I had a bunch of large. They were pieces that I did when I was at Zen Art Center, and they were. Um, pieces for their performance pieces that really had the had a basis in a sound element and they were um, pieces uh, where <laughs> this is going to sound funny where I would put tuned bells on goats and move them around in space uh, outside Yeah, and it's astonishing to list, to hear a lot of animals with these tinkling little bells and how they move through a space. And um, I, you know, my, I just have sort of a farmy background. My mom grew up on a dairy and I, I, I was involved, I worked for a goat on a goat farm in Walla Walla and um, uh, yeah, really sort of, that's where it all, where the <laughs> idea, the seed of it came from. And it was, it was, um, you know, I, I brought those back with me and I lived on a farm with a bunch of my college friends and I had some goats. So, you know, I sort of just messed around with that for a while. And we had, I was in several bands. Some were more conventional than others. And, um, yeah, yeah it was just... <laughs> I love how I was like, yeah, after you did this, you did more conventional stuff. And then you tell me about your music for Tuned Bells on Goats project, which is not what I meant when I was talking about the more conventional stuff. I was talking a little bit. You kind of were involved in the sort of emergence of the alt country thing, right? Did you you played with the Blood Oranges? What was how did you hook up with them? Well, I'd been in a couple bands that were mostly like sort of post-punk style bands, rock bands just you know straight ahead and um a friend of mine brought me you know i we had the last band was just not going to work together anymore when we were sort of floating around and a friend of mine just um gave me this cassette tape and said hey these guys are looking for a bass player and um so i drove out to boston and i met them uh the ron ward the drummer and jimmy ryan the mandolin player and I really loved the cassette. Um, it was like four songs. It was nothing like I didn't, I mean, I always loved um, the country music of the 60s, but I never really delved into um, more, you know, just straight up hillbilly music. And that Jimmy really came from that. You know, he was a kid who grew up, he's my age, he grew up in much of the same type of environment I grew up in. Um, and he listened to rock music, but he, he always played bluegrass. It was just his thing. He was born to do it. And, um, you know, so I started playing with them and I really had a, a, a lot of fun and they, you know, I had never, they were way better players, you know, than anyone I had ever played with. And, um, it was again, you know, just falling in love with like, that learning curve of, oh my gosh, this is like some new music to explore. And, you know, they, they, they were, had a record deal already and, you know, we're doing a lot of gigs and stuff. And so we, we did that for, I don't know, I think five years. Yeah. Five years. And then, uh, 
uh, yeah, it was it was really fun. You made a couple albums with with the group. Um, yeah, we did. When you were in the studio, was that same feeling of excitement? Was that that you felt maybe you know when you were younger, and you were working at Evergreen? Were, were you feeling a similar sense of sort of like do or die? really fun, you know, kind of vibe. I mean, I imagine that they probably insisted on occasionally doing a second take in the, in the, in the rock band. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I found that type of recording, um, more stressful. Sure. Definitely. Um, I'm not really, uh, yeah. And yeah, there's, I think I hate to say this, but this is actually true. I think when I'm in the studio, I just want to have control about what's going, you know, I want it to be my ideas and, you know, live it was different with them because those guys were such good players. Right. You know, and again, for someone like me doing those two beat or train beat um, bluegrass style playing was heaven for me. Root and five all night long, repetitive, repetitive. I could do it. I mean, I could just do it all night. Yeah. <laughs> Still, I loved it. Yeah. And, um, and, and they would just go nuts, you yeah. know, kicking all over the place. And it was, it was a blast. There's a meditation Love to it. that too, right? There's a meditative oh, trance. Absolutely. You can absolutely slip into a trance when you're doing that kind of playing. That's beautiful. Yeah. Yep. And I, I, um, definitely really enjoyed that. And I loved that, that part of it, the actual, um, you know, just, um, yeah, just I I did, you know, I enjoyed playing with them probably more than any other band. Yeah. Just because I could I didn't, you know, I wasn't really out front. I could just kind of hang back and get into my little world. But yeah, for the to answer your question, I found the studio to be a, a little bit more trying. Sure. And not as it was it felt tighter. You know, it felt it was loose when you know, when I'm working in the studio, it's very loose. You know, I'm like twiddling this that and um you know just having fun seeing what happens and 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 i don't know what's going to happen but when you're in the studio with a band you you have a song and that's what's going to happen right so there's a big difference and you've got people who might have differing views on how it's going to happen or something along those lines yeah 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 when you when you went solo following the end of, of Blood Oranges, I think you made a, a couple records, um, The Knitter and Northeast Kingdom. Um, mm-hmm. Did you feel like you had more control in the studio then? Did that suit you a little bit better when you were working with your own project? Um, no, not really. <laughs> no, I think I think really what it, what it, it's it's probably not about the band. It's probably not about it, any band. It's more about trying to do something. I, I felt like I was always chasing something, chasing the idea again. After the song was written and played, chasing it. I'm, I, uh, you know, I'm, I was somebody who like really disliked demo chasing. Yeah. And I always did all my demos like just on one. Sometimes it was just bass and voice um because i i just i don't know i liked the open-endedness of like where are we going um and i i actually have to say um you know i i i just feel like maybe that um you know songwriting is interesting 
it was it's its own little world it's a it's a small very condensed very it's full um but it's so very abbreviated in some ways but it's strangely complete yeah and i found it really compelling and i started writing songs for the band because i was just really fascinated by it and fascinated by lyrics and writing lyrics you know just i'm not a writer of words at all and um so it was just it was a really it was a nice the the um actual act of writing music writing a song could be very a very bedeviling experience but um i actually really liked it i found it very hard yeah i think just it's not as natural for me as as um you know what i do now or what the the american rituals just um yeah i so. I went back and listened to some of the stuff. You can find some stuff on YouTube, and I listened to mm-hmm. the, the Megalith, one of the songs. And <laughs> Sherry, now ho- that was fun. Sherry, holy shit, that one rules. That's such a jam. What a what a cool guitar part. That what a cool vibe was, on that one. Yep. Yeah, and you know why that one that was so fun. Why that was so fun is because, well, I got to play guitar on that, and. I really don't, I'm not a guitar player. I don't Mm. really, I don't, it's not my instrument, but you know, I just, I can't even, I think it was an SG and I just plugged it in and that was a one taker. Yeah. Another one. And that was, yeah. Yeah. And I, I have to say, I, that song was, um, I just, I, I really had fun writing that. And I really, I still love that song. Yeah. You know, there's some of my other songs I go, well, I don't know. <laughs> but that one I really dig. And the story of it too is just wacky to, to beat the band. Um, you know, just the, um, uh, you know, it's about like Stonehenge type things. And there's a place up in New Hampshire that we actually went. Um, I think, I can't remember where which band, but anyway, where we had a gig in New Hampshire and there's uh, a place that's called America's Stonehenge. And it's, it's like a mini um, astrological clock made of stones and there's little caves and little, little standing stones and light shines in on the solstice. And, um, and I wrote it, you know, about stuff like that. Yeah. So uh, it, it was so interesting. Anyway, that was, that was fun. Yeah. That was a fun song to do. Well, yeah, that one that one struck me struck me, and I I really enjoyed listening to that one. Um, your your second solo record, so that one was produced by Steve Earle. Did you meet him through Blood Blood Oranges, or had you crossed paths? How did that happen? Um, actually, it's so funny you mentioned Megalith because the Knitter had come out, and I was at South by. and I met this woman, and um, she was well, she came to our show, and she. Uh, was uh, a uh, publicist and she wanted uh, she just had a bunch of stuff and she knew Steve and Steve had been in Texas and she made a drive to he had to drive to Nashville and she made a drive tape for him and the first song on it was Megalith and apparently this is what he told me more than once um, that he just rewound 
he rewound it the entire way. Yeah. He just loved that song. <laughs> and he just called me up, you know, when I, you know, and I wasn't really familiar with him, his music. I mean, I knew him. I actually know somebody from where I lived and who was part of our music scene here who actually was his sound man for years. Um, so I'd heard some crazy stories, but I didn't know his music very well. And yeah, and I just got a call, you know, from him and he just wanted to do a record. So Emmy Lou Harris appears on the record too, right? Yeah. Yep. What was it like working with her? I mean, were you a fan of hers? Did you know her, her oh, work? Oh, yeah. From the 70s, I used to listen to all her records. I mean, actually, that was that was sort of my entree into um, anything country yeah. was, um, was her, the hot band, and those early records. Um, yeah, she's just, um, she's really cool. She's very smart. And she's really, you know, she, she can talk about all kinds of things. Yeah. With and, and make sense. <laughs> and so she, it was fun. And, you know, she's very just she knows what she's doing. She just goes in and like just does it and doesn't, you know, there's no drama, just in and out, one take, but a boom. <laughs> That's awesome. That's awesome. You yeah. must have felt a kinship with her, a one take, one take yeah, kind of, yeah, one take I know. Kind of I player. Like, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I thought that was pretty cool. Well, you mentioned so. the music that you're that you're making now. Can you tell me uh, about what what you you also mentioned? Sorry, let me back up slightly. Yeah, you you mentioned that you took a, a, a fairly long break from making music, mm-hmm. and you were just working on the farm. Uh, I believe farming flowers and and really dedicating yourself to that. Um, yeah, was your was your was your uh, sort of drift away from music? Was that something that bothered you? Did it feel strange, or was it just sort of going with the the flow? What was the what was the, what did that feel like, or what was what was motivating that? Well, um, so um, Northeast Kingdom came out in '98, and and I was on the road until you know from the very early you know like January I think until like July, and then. Um, you know, it was just a lot of personal reasons. Um, you know, I was getting divorced. My marriage was like not on, in a good place. And I was really, really kind of tired. That tour was long. And, you know, and I discovered that I didn't, you know, I'd never really been out on the road for any length of time with a band. You know, we'd done little things here and there with Blood Oranges, but nothing like that. And, um, you know, I'm kind of a homebody. And um, so I got home and I, I actually wasn't at that point, point um, I was farming for a little while and I always worked on a. I have this friend, who, you know, I lived in a farming town and um, I worked on um, his organic farm and leased some land and did the flower thing for a while. And then, um, you know, I just wanted to make some more money. I got off the road and I was really broke and um, so I just, I, you know, I wanted to just put that down and I think. The other thing is, I I know when I'm done with something, and I felt like bands and songwriting that that I just had done what I came to do sure. at that moment, and so it didn't really I didn't really have any more energy to put toward that particular thing. Um, but as far as music went, um, yeah, I I went off on my own. And, you know, moved, got a job, moved north a little bit. And, you know, it was just mostly working. And, um, you know, just uh, 
becoming an adult. Sure. You know, in my in my early forties. Sure. I mean, literally, <laughs> it's just it took a long time. But um, but yeah, I mean, in all those years, I always, I mean, I have a folder, um, and and I immediately went back to, um, idea work. You know, just having all. I'm like, oh, this piece, this would be great to do, and just. You know, anytime it would stick with me, I would write it down and just slip it into a, you know, I've got this whole folder yeah. of ideas that I like, that I, you know, am, am really excited about. And um, really, the the um, process now is, um, you know, I, I say I love a learning curve. Well, I you know, this learning curve, having set up a studio and, you know, I've done a lot of studio work, but I never really ran any of the gear i mean i i know signal flow and you know i know the basic concepts of what i'm doing but um it's you know it, it just dawned on me that like for a thousand dollars i could have this humongous this like very capable studio in a laptop in oh, my yeah. house yeah so i'm like you know and it took me like 20 20 years to figure that out <laughs> but anyway so yeah so now i mean i've just got a bunch of pieces that are um, you know, some of them are starting to move them into the musical phase. And, you know, I was a keyboard player before anything for like, you know, since I was a kid and, and through Evergreen. And um, so I'm working with some synthesizers and not actually using the keyboard a lot, actually, for that. I'm, I decided I'm sort of, I'm just doing, you know, knob tweaking. Um, but doing that and um, playing that thing yeah. over there. I see. Is it, is it, is it cello? <laughs> No, that is a half size bass, oh, half size upright. Yeah, beautiful. And which I played, yeah, which I played uh, thirty years ago, and then put down, uh, and then just or actually maybe 25, 20, 25 years ago, yeah, and then just picked it up again, and um, you know, it's a beast. It's yeah. a beast of an instrument to, and I'm just you know getting my strength back so that I can play without having to stop everyone. <laughs> <laughs> sure, it's hilarious. sure but um yeah it's great it's very i mean talk about just the bowing i love you know i switch bows i used to play with the german bow and now i'm playing overhand i really like the french bow and um you know it's just mesmerizing it's the most mess i just i'm such a bass bass player i mean a bass person yeah um you know i just love that so i just got anyway I'm gonna. Sh I'll show it. I just got this thing, which is a. Ooh. It's a. It's a six-string bass. Yeah. What? Where? What is that? Is, <laughs> it's what a, kind of? It's 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 by Squire. It's like the it's like the Fender. Uh, you know their their budget line, or it was their budget yeah, line for yeah, a long no, time. Yeah, yeah, I know Squires. Yeah. But absolutely. now you can get one of these six-string basses for a lot more. A, a, a much more affordable price than a real Fender one, but I'm obsessed with it. I'm, I'm. Oh, it's so cool! I've always wanted to g get a, a a guitar that sounds like a bass or a bass that sounds like a guitar, yeah. and so I finally, finally got that figured out. But yeah, so I know what you mean. Oh, though. that's great! It takes a it, you got to get used to it, but um, yeah. But Sherry, it's yeah. it's it's so cool that you're that you're that you're working on stuff, and it's been yeah. it's been such a pleasure speaking with you about this music. Like I said, American yeah. Rituals has been so much fun to um, 
as of the time this will drop on the podcast, uh, I will have already done this, but I'm playing Prime Numbers on the radio this Sunday uh, on Dub oh, Lab. Cool. And Thank you. I'm just so excited about that one. That one's so much fun. And I played it for the guy, Michael Krasner, who I, who I make my radio show with. And he was just like, what yeah. is this? Super into it. So <laughs> everybody is, uh, it, it's, it's so, I'm so glad that this is, has got out there. And I really appreciate you taking the time to discuss it with me. Yeah, well, I, it's been my pleasure. Thank you very much. And have fun playing that six string. I will. I will. Great. And yeah, you have fun playing awesome. your bass. And, uh, and, yes. and we'll catch up. We can keep in touch. So thank you so much. Sherry. All right. Yep. Take care. Right. Have a Bye-bye good one. Now. Bye. Yep. Bye. Sherry Knight here on Transmissions. You can get your copy of American Rituals from the great folks at Freedom to Spend Records. Check it out on Bandcamp and, of course, on vinyl. Thanks for joining us. We appreciate your listen. You can support this podcast by checking out our Patreon page. Uh, Over there, you can pledge a couple bucks to help us keep making the show. And, of course, we'd love it if you left a review and a five-star rating on Apple Podcasts, another great way uh, to, to help the show out. Uh, click that subscribe button, of course, too, so you never miss an episode. Transmissions is part of the TalkHouse Podcast Network. I'm Jason P. Woodbury. I write, host, and produce Transmissions. Our audio is edited by Andrew Horton. Our show is executive produced by Justin Gage, Aquarium Drunkard founder. Don't miss his Aquarium Drunkard show every Wednesday night at 7 p.m. Pacific time on Sirius XMU. Next week on the show, I am joined by Glenn Mercer of New Jersey indie rock legends, The Feelies. I had a great time speaking with them, so I hope you will come back for that one. All right, be well until then. This transmission is concluded. Transmissions.